I got my cues from the cameraman that I can start. <laughs> so uh, we've covered a lot. 40 talks. I've said something. <laughs> and uh, I, I, the image that came tonight, I was, I was standing and just, uh, uh, just thinking about uh, where we have gone <clears throat> and where we are at this moment in in the relationship to these four foundations. I, I thought of the uh, uh, optical illusion that we're all very familiar with. Uh, and I think it's a, the, there's a single picture that if you look at it one way, it's an older woman. And if you look at it another, it's, I think it's a, a candle holder or something like that. Uh, and it depends on where you focus as to what you see and you can't see both of them at the same time. And whatever you, everyone know this? Okay. So whatever you're focusing on seems uh, complete uh, and uh, to exclude the other possibility when it's being focused on. It's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon, really, because when you see the older woman, the whole field holds that particular uh, subject matter. Now, how this ties into the talks, or where we are within the talks, is that most of us, for most of our lives, have been focused on the forms of the world, the expressions of objects within the world, of forms. And they have garnered our attention because there's a lot that we want from those forms. Both uh, psychological needs we have that we need from other forms, but also in terms of our desires or fears or versions of other forms we want to possess or avoid. And when we have that kind of relationship, we see only one part of the picture. We see the old woman, only. And it's impossible for us to uh, uh, include another possibility. And it holds its own logic, its own purpose, its own, own intention. That form expresses itself within the world with its own logic, with its own rationale. Uh, and the, our culture is devoted to the, that particular expression of form. Now what I am encouraging us to do is to hold the opportunity that there may be something else. There may be a candle holder that we can see. Uh, and it's a little hard now to talk about the formlessness because formlessness isn't a candle holder. It's the absence of form. But it's, it holds the same, the, same, uh, the same analogy works. So if we it divest from what we have wanted our life to be about and all of the neediness we have to make form form and to make it work for our life, you see what we're up against. We're up against our entire purpose and meaning. We're up against everything that we've invested within our life to make it successful through form. And so it takes an awful lot of insight and investigation and understanding for that to energy to be extracted and it can't be extracted just because you want it to be extracted because that's the strategy that held the form to form. It has to be extracted because we no longer see that what we invested in is worth the investment. Or said differently that the forms that we have 
hoped for our salvation aren't going to provide it. And there are lots of ways in Buddhism that we do that. We do this by showing you the impermanence of form. Uh, because form can only be invested in if there's a kind of guarantee that it's going to be a salvation for some lasting period of time. But when you start looking at what form is up close and personal, you see that it's, that it's trans in transition, it's transient. So that's one of the ways we do it. The other way, there are many ways. Another way is that you begin to see that the forms are mind-created, that we have made form through our memory and acknowledgement through our history what it is and the worth of what it is has come from us it's not intrinsic in the form itself and so in some way we've been chasing our own minds when we've been chasing the form and we saw this in the second foundation because we understood that the valuation the value we were giving form was coming from our sense of feeling tone we are investing it within that and so there's a flaw in our rationale. And the flaw is that form doesn't work. It only works when we are uh, in a massive denial that uh, there's anything wrong with form. And we have to do that. We have to, be, have to arrange things so precariously. The culture, everybody else has to buy into what we're doing. We have to project out all the dissatisfaction we have with forms onto circumstances and blame it on the boss or the barking dog or whatever it is. And that way we can keep our little uh, cornered area of the lawn intact and not recognize the flaw that is inherent in this overloaded uh, investment. You see? It's warped. It's, it's, the tire's flat and we're still trying to drive on it. So what the, these foundations do is they divest from the form that we have lived our life for and they reinvest it in the candle holder. They want to see if there's something else that can be seen or sensed, a felt sense, uh, in our bodies when we're not giving our life over to the pursuit of other objects. And lo and behold, we begin to sense that. We begin to sense that something else takes its place when we aren't just looking at the old woman. And lo and behold, the candlestick starts to arise. In the words of the four foundation, it's awareness, presence, presence. We sense it. And that begins to stir our interests. Because the flaw that was inherent in keeping things being what they were was that we didn't, part of ourselves was never actualized, was never touched, was never um, really uh, approached. And that's our hearts. Our hearts were never touched within the world of objects. 
And we're longing and desperate and thirsty for our hearts, for our heart, the quenching of our heart. And so as we divest from the world of objects, we get flooded with a sense of intimacy, love, compassion, joy is an expression of love. All, lots of the qualities that we call, or all of the qualities that we call the paramis, are qualities that arise when we have begun to see the other half of the picture. No longer the, everything is the old woman. There's the candle holder as well. Now what happens that's very important here, and we'll talk about it later, but I just want to briefly mention it, is that we can now divest completely from the world of objects and invest completely in the world of formlessness. Now we only see the candlestick. We no longer see the older woman. And we're as lost in that picture, or can be as lost, because now we're spiritually lost, and we can be more fixed in spiritual, our spiritual lostness than we ever could in our worldly sense, because they were higher than everybody else. We see things that no one else sees. Everything else is an illusion. How can you take that as being the truth? Don't you see it's an illusion? And it gets hideous. In the same way, using because we're only investing in one half of the picture. Right? That's not freedom. Freedom isn't on the left side, it's not on the right side. When we're not looking for the candlestick and we're not looking for the older woman, both of those forms come in and out. The form and the formlessness comes in and can be used and can be used usefully within whatever is called for within and appropriate within the moment. But when we are no when nothing is called for, we don't have to hold anything to be anything. We don't have to make anything a candlestick or an older woman. And it's within that neitherness that true liberation arises. And you can see that when you look at that optical illusion, see if you can, don't try, because as soon as you try, you'll see one or the other. But if you relax your gaze and just look at the ink blot that's in front of you, rather than trying to pull something out of that ink blot, you can, you can let it all come back together again. You know, it's very interesting that quantum mechanics has that as its premise that an object remains a possibility until it is seen, until there is consciousness. Consciousness makes the wave pattern into an object. It crystallizes it out. Consciousness does that. This is science. This is not whimsical mysticism. This is science. And there are many experience experiments that have proven just that. And it's exactly the same thing, really, that is the equation of freedom within our own life. Now, most of us are somewhere or other on that duality. Either we are still invested in form and we'd like to, yes, we'd like to have the older woman, but we'd like to have the older woman younger. <laughs> right? Or prettier. Right, but we see the older woman, and we only see the old woman, but we're trying to do everything we can to beautify, all right? So that's where most of us are. And we want our meditation to beautify the figure. 
to make it prettier, to make it younger, to make it more flexible, I don't know, whatever. And some of us have sensed this other possibility of the candlestick, and it seems very interesting, and we're beginning to sense that that can be an alternative to just the forms that we have seen. And so we're, so hopefully we're being able to move over because the spiritual, the sacred, is not held within the form. The form is just the form. It's the, it's the mind. It's like billiard balls. Many, most people don't have religious experience playing pool. But if you, <laughs> but within the spaciousness, the, the heart space, now the sacred can arise. Now you can feel something. Oh, whoa. Okay. So that, I just wanted to give that as a brief introduction to the question and answers tonight so that people can get a sense of where this moves and perhaps stimulate some questions from there. So, anyone? Yes, sir. Can you distinguish between mindfulness and active awareness? Yes, the question is can I distinguish between mindfulness and active awareness? or just awareness. Um, we're given mindfulness as our duty and purpose, aren't we? It's our exercise, it's our instructions from day one. And uh, we get very serious about it and we try to uh, bring a lot of intentionality to our mindfulness and we uh, begrudge it when we can't be mindful throughout the day and we try to make our day laced with all mindfulnesses, as much mindfulness as we possibly can and we, and we do all sorts of tricks to try to get our attention continuous so that we can be continuously mindful. And if we're honest, we fail. We, every one of us. Because you can't, you can't possibly sustain awareness because the presence of a sense of a person, object formed, is the absence of awareness. And so no matter how much you try to be aware, and you can have some awareness, you have to get out of the way of it, and so there, but as soon as a thought takes over, awareness is gone. Your mindfulness is kaput. So you'll be walking down the street and you'll be very with your body in motion, and life seems so easy, and then a car will honk at you and you go, that son of a... And where is it? It's gone. Because within the arising of that thought, we've invested back into form, and therefore the formlessness is lost. We only see the old woman. Do you see? And we try and we try and we try, and we, we get pretty... I mean, it's not that it, it can't be... Um, a very useful practice. It is a very useful practice in sitting and walking. But what it really does is that it begins to show us insightfully the limitation of form that we never had. Until we're aware or apply awareness through mindfulness, we don't know that there's any limitation of form or not. We sense there might be, but when we actually start applying mindfulness to what we're doing and the emotions we're having and the changing nature of phenomena, we begin to see that form is not what we counted on it, and therefore this natural extraction begins to happen from overinvestment in objects. Now, when that happens, we can 
we, the sense of I, can still be very much in control, but we begin to sense that as I lose focus on objects, when it's no longer the, the compelling reason to live is to pursue objects, I get kind of ambiguous in myself. I'm not as defined. I'm only defined when I'm chasing an object. If I'm chasing an object, the I that's chasing is equally defined as the projection of the interpretation of what I'm chasing. When I'm not chasing objects, the sense of awareness grows, but the sense of I and the image that the I is begins to become less distinct. And then there is a sense of, ari of awareness arising. It's not, mindful, it's not mindful anymore. It's not me doing it. In fact, it's the inverse of that process. It's when I'm no longer investing in trying to get something objective from the world that this awareness begins to show up in my absence. And it happens by accident. All of a sudden, we just, we're sitting and we think, oh, wow. I'm just naturally aware. This just seems to be natural awareness. And we don't know how it happened. We didn't do anything. Something just fell away. And in the falling away of that, something else arose. And we begin to get an ongoing appreciation of how this whole system figure ground works. If you over-figurize life, you miss the ground. And so the, the ground begins to rise as we begin to be more self-diminishing. And I don't mean that in some kind of forced humility. I mean just realizing that I stand in the way of my own real spiritual progress. Now, this is, this is very interesting, or it should be to us, because most of us want to carry this thing through, muscle our way through this whole project, and claim an enlightened sense of me at the other end. But it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. So you see, and you can't muscle your way through it all in this. It has to be done through insight, through understanding, <laughs> wisdom, having seen. The beauty of having of awareness is that you see experientially. You see beyond concepts, beyond beliefs, beyond being told something. You actually see for yourself, and that has a different effect upon our psyche than a belief system or knowledge. And when you see something clearly, then you can't pretend that you didn't see it. And, and the tentacles that held that when you weren't seeing it falter when you are. The, forced, the forcedness of wanting the world to be a certain way when you see it isn't that way, all that, that just becomes relinquished. Now, many of us overstay our mindfulness practice long beyond where we should. It's because we haven't been directed to look out for what, how you can extract true awareness from this process, how that true awareness arises from this practice. So uh, my, my, what I try to do is I do that up front. And I let you stay in mindfulness, but you don't forget that there's something else there because I remind you every week. But I'm not taking mindfulness away from you because there's an evolution towards moving out of mindfulness as well as an evolution of moving into awareness. And that's an 
a maturity of wisdom. At a certain point, you just no longer want the world in the same way you did. Not because you want the formless, but because the world doesn't mean the same thing. You've seen through the veneer. You've seen through the polish of what the world used to mean to you. And there's a falling away of its burden. And there's a simplicity and an ease that comes. And when you're not trying to force yourself through life by making the world into what you want it to be, then what the world actually is begins to arise and be seen. And that's the movement from mindfulness to awareness. It's not to begrudge mindfulness at all. And so I'm not trying to have you work in any other way than where you are appropriately positioned. What you need to look at in yourself. One of the ways we keep ourselves in form is that we believe everything that happens within this form has a personal implication about it. All the states of mind mean something about me. My history means that I'm a form, that I'm an object. When history comes up, when the reaction takes place, I see the world in terms of subject and object because I'm so firmly in my subjectness. Right? Anger, loneliness, fear, uh, grief keep me very subjective. And therefore, when I'm subjective, the world is objective. It can't be any other way. If you're subjective, the world's going to be objective. If you're pay looking at the world objectively, you're going to come from subject. Subject and object arise together. It has to be that way. Okay, so as we begin to look at the mind, third foundation, just this. It's just this. There's no me in it. Where is the me in any of this? It's me was added. It was like you had this perfect stew, and then you added <laughs> cayenne. <laughs> Ruined it. <laughs> perfect stew. The perfect is perfect. All there comes a carrot. There comes a potato. Right. The perfect stew is nothing you don't, we don't need to change anything in this movement of mind states. It's all just, it's just that. There's nothing we need to claim. We don't need to reference anything. We don't need to bring our history to bear upon anything. We simply just need to let things be as they are. That then begins to detract, divest the sense of subjectness Remember, we're already working on objectness. Now we're divesting the energy of subjectness as well. And those two together, as they begin to, now the world, now the world begins to be seen as awareness. Now, it's be, now, now that's the medium through which you walk. And what is perceived within awareness is interconnectedness. Because you're not seeing objects. Doesn't it just fit logically that things would come together if they weren't being seen as separate? Well, that's what happens. 
And now the heart really does respond. You see, how can the heart respond to something that is artificially induced like an object? But it can arise naturally when you see things coming together interconnectedly because that's the truth of things. And so the heart will respond to the truth of what it sees. And so that's why the heart, the heart's day, the heart's liberation comes from the formlessness that we see. Yes. No, I, that's a good, don't, it's fine. That's a good question. And it has to do with, you know, is awakening, I mentioned in one lecture or another, the beginning, is that the same thing as I'm talking about enlightenment? Or what's, what are all these different uh, words that we hear? I don't uh, use the word enlightenment so much because I think it's, it, it's one of those words like God that's been so overinvested that we all have our idea of it. I like the word awakening because it has some sense of being taken over by consciousness as rather than being unconscious. We wake up to having been in stupor with just our thoughts and just our unconscious tendencies. So awakening seems to hold a better, uh, is a better uh, metaphor for the actual process itself. So I like awakening. Now, awakening, as I've mentioned before, is not that rare, actually. Uh, many folks have some awakening within their life. Some uh, less than half, but not that much many less than half, have actually had an awakening experience at some time or other by some New York Times article I read many years ago. I'm not sure what they meant by awakening back then, but let us sense that there was a, a, a shift of figure ground, because that's really what awakening does. Most of us are firmly implanted within our skin. Everything seems to be very much contained within this fathom-long body. And it, it's like we don't have any other perspective outside of it. <clears throat> it feels like everything that we do is sort of done within this organism. And suddenly, at some point, you'll have an experience that will flip that around. Suddenly there will be a sense that you, the sense of the, of the subject in the body is not the governing force in life. That that which holds the body and the mind is the governing force. And that we, the sense of I, is being held at all times within something much larger. And that is actually realized. That's not an idea that we love to have and we pray to have. It is a realization. We awaken out of the uh, dream state that we are contained within this organism. And then... For most people, and 
if there is someone in which this doesn't happen, I don't know of them, we come back into the body. And although we realize that, we're back where we were before we realized it. And we think, God, how did I, how did I get back in here? I really know this now. What? Now, why I call that the beginning is because now you're serious. You do know it. And yet, you also understand that there's another reality available and that that figure ground needs to be switched if this sense of self will ever be liberated from its own oppression. But we then have to learn how that's done because the old way was I just forced it. I just got in there and did it manually. But we realize doing it manually keeps me within the form and expression of being a person. And that's not what I realized. I realized just the opposite, that I wasn't the person I thought I was. You see? So well, what am I supposed to do? Like, I don't know what to do now. So there's a lot of awkwardness in that. And then as we get on track to how to have that work for us, we begin to get a sense then it happens more frequently. At first it kind of happens with a, sometimes with a sense of drama, not always, but that, oh God, we get all excited and you know all that. But then it's kind of routine and it doesn't fool you when the film, the, the, the veil redescends, it doesn't fool you even because you know it's not like okay so there's something there's some resistance I'm having in this moment that needs to be investigated and looked at so I investigate and look at where the resistance is I release that resistance and then back it comes and so you start cleaning out the junk in the attic you see and full awakening I suspect is having a clean attic Okay, so does that make sense to you? So, okay, now listen to me. Do not get discouraged. Oh, I'm not one of the 30%. How am I ever? Don't do that. There's nothing wrong with anyone here. There's nothing wrong. Everyone has exactly the same potential. You have exactly the same potential as anyone who's ever lived. Right? Look at what's in front of your eyes. Look where you're resisting in life. Look where you're investing in life. Look where you want life to be something that it is not. And be honest with yourself about what it really is. Honesty is the gateway to liberation, to awakening. Not pretension. Not prayer. Oh, please, God, save me. Honesty. Looking. Seeing. And that takes care of itself. So, if you feel discouraged, look at discouragement. What's going on here? Why is this feeling arising? Why do I feel so? Because that is holding us in place as a person, discouragement. You see? You always look at that which is closest, which is veiling, which is the veil, which is, the, which is tinting the lens. Which is the last thing we want to look at because we want to be discouraged. Cause it may. It, it, what's the matter, Rodney? I'm so discouraged. Oh, now we get what we want through 
uh, being an, a subject is attention, you know, or whatever it is. I don't mean that in any kind of cruel, but we're looking at this thing now as a liberating path. Liberating path, we don't have time for pity. We don't have time for that. We've got to move on here. You know, we're getting old. <laughs> it's time to move on here. And so we have to clean up the messes, not just dwell and wallow in the messes. And wherever we're wallowing, we need to look at that. And if we need therapy, we get therapy. We need this, we get that. We use whatever means available to clean up the messes, not to stay in the mess. Yes, Krista. Um, going back to your Good. No, then that's very good. Okay, do you want me to go from there? Okay, so she was talking about active and passive awareness or uh, active and passive discernment. discernment. Thank you. I'm the one that gave the talk. Uh, active and passive discernment that I talked about last week. Uh, and she says when she gets very actively discerning, she starts a, a, a sort of um, a mucking up the stew by an intellectual realization or an intellectual addition uh, to what it is that she's seeing. And so she says passive discernment seems to be much more helpful to her at this particular time, right? Which is beautiful. Okay, so we know that passive discernment, you can feel the value of passive discernment with you. And you don't want to take this active discernment on until you feel really stable in how to do it without getting lost, without it just being washed away within, within the process. Uh, and so uh, it doesn't help to, to cultivate and work with passive discernment for some time. You're not losing anything. But when we have a life that's very active, it's hard to bring passive discernment to a life that's like a waterfall. There's a lot of things happening. And so we want to learn how to do this thing, but we want to learn it in a wise way, in a wise direction. So we want to take this thing apart very carefully. Okay, so as I mentioned last week as an example, I said, okay, now every one of us in the room quite likely is feeling some form of physical uh, resistance or stress in this moment, in the body, in the body, foundation one. Just let's go to that area. Maybe it's the belly, the shoulders, maybe it's the jaw, maybe we're, okay, so we just, just, just bring an attention to bear upon wherever it is that we feel stressed in this moment. And 
if you just look at it, not just in terms of the physical sensation of stress, but if you include what the mind is doing that forms that stress in that moment, you might feel, oh, I'm discouraged, or I'm trying too hard, or I don't know what he's saying and it's just, it, it feels frustrating to me not to you know. And that's creating this kind of tension. And you can feel that. You can feel what the mind's involvement in that stress is. You get a sense of that? Let me just see one or two nods. Okay, good. <laughs> now we're into it. This is investigation. Oh, I see. So I'm discouraged. I'm just going to use that because I've been using that. Okay, I'm discouraged. Okay, so let me just let me just focus in on the discouragement. Let me just not get lost in anything. Just let me focus in on being discouraged. And sometimes what will come out of that is a lot of history or memories, but we're not going to see those with a lot of interest. We're just going to feel them kind of moving through our view, you know, and oh, my father, and, and when I was a child, I was all that, but we're, we're experiencing it, not getting lost or dwelling or wallowing on it. And we're actually clearing out or cleaning up the sense of us that doesn't feel adequate, which is leading to the discouragement, which is leading to the stress, which is keeping me resistance, which is keeping me in form. <laughs> And we did that just through curiosity. If you do that through defensiveness, you'll never get anywhere. You'll go, stress, oh God, I'm going to show everybody that I'm not stressed. I've got to sit up straighter. How does this look in terms of calm? <laughs> How am I doing? You see, this can't be met with defensiveness. It has to be met with interest, real interest. Where does real interest come from? Because that's where active discernment comes from. It comes from real interest. Real interest comes from having seen that you're less, you're not what you have taken yourself to be. That the mind is just the mind. It's just doing its thing. It's just a, it just, it has a configuration based upon what we have lived in our past. How we've lived the mind is what the mind has, how it's formed. And so what we do when we, when we enter our psyche is we enter past formations of mind, the past coming at us in all of its different disguises, like, oh, this, the disguise of inadequacy that leads to discouragement and all of that. That's the past. That's how we've learned to be. So when we get interested in what we and how we've learned to be in this life, we get interested in our pain. When you're interested in the pain, the pain will open to you like it never would if you just wanted to close it and not see it. That's how this thing opens. So it's so beautiful that it, you know, the, the only thing that's closing this thing down is our not wanting to see it. If we want to see it, there's nothing stopping it from being shown to us. Like I was listening to this cosmologist who was saying, you know, what he's, the last uh, 20 years has, 
revealed enormous, uh, there's enormous realization of the way the cosmos is and how it formed and how it originated. Just amazing. And he says he doesn't know whether, whether he likes the fact that it's revealing its secrets so easily or whether he would wish it would protect those secrets a little more so there would be a little more something. Enigmatic. But that's what the universe does. Why would the universe, which is, as we are, want to hold its secrets, which would only happen from a, some kind of force that was a malevolent force, why wouldn't it show us what, was, what, what, what it was if we wanted to see it? And if you want to see it, it will reveal itself to you. See, that's what's so beautiful about this thing. We go as fast as our own denial. And so some of us want to go as fast as we can be in control. Well, you can't be in control, so you won't go fast at all. You'll go backward, in reverse. It's like putting your car in reverse and then, okay, I'm going forward. <laughs> you can't stay in control in this thing. If you could, then it would maintain your sense of personhood, which would maintain your sense of object, which would maintain the world as separate. You see? So you have to, we have to be willing, like it's the full Monty. Right? Everything has to be revealed here. That's what's so beautiful about it. I mean, I mean there's some elegance in, the, in just the way it's configured that's just sometimes breathtaking. In its simplicity, and in its revelation. Other questions or comments? Yes. Yes, sir. When I feel like uh, the barrier between self and surroundings dissolves, So he says that uh, at certain uh, extraordinary moments, he, there's a, a, a dropping of divi division within his psyche, and the, but they're usually so extraordinary. They're like moments at the beach or in the mountaintop or when somebody's dying. And then there's a moment in which that sense of separation is temporarily, temporarily subsides. And there's a feeling of things coming together but he wants it to continue and to last. So you see, I, I just want to show something that's very important here, that you are approaching it 
from the wrong paradigm when you say you want it to last. You get it immediately? You see? Because what you saw was that you only get in the way of yourself. And that in those moments, those moments of awe and rapture, those moments of ease and tranquility that we've all experienced, what you are is absent. For whatever reason, there was a moment in which you released your need to have to protect yourself. And when there is a release of the need to have to protect yourself, there is what manifests intrinsically is revealed. And then you come out of that and say, how do I make that last? And that question sustains the divisiveness. Because you are taking it on as a personal strategy for you to resolve this issue. So the, you have to be very careful of the way you form questions. Because the way you form questions will decide what strategy you use to ultimately uh, discover the fruits of this thing. So the best you can do is say, I don't know how that happened. I do know that I wasn't, it wasn't a volitional will. Start there and say, okay, when it's not volitional, what does it look like when I'm not being volitional? When I'm not forcing, when I'm not trying, when I'm not using the force of my own intention to move this thing but rather settle back completely into what is. Now you can feel that that's going to have some revelation. If you're pulling it forward, you're making the world into something in that effort to lean towards it. When you are totally upright and letting it be just what it is, it comes back into its original form. See, because we're not forcing it to be other than what it is. So, then you say, okay, so what if I just didn't do anything? And then this little voice inside of you says, don't do anything. That's like what I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> That's not going to solve anything. So all this doubt comes in. Well, it doesn't work the other way either. So this time, I'm, I, a new intention arises within me. The intention to be apart rather than to be separate. And so I'm going to watch everything I do that creates my form of separation. I'm going to study it completely so I know how the ego works to create its own sense of separation. And so I'm going to study this sense of self. Get it, get, get it down.
when, when that happens, it seems that all bets are off for me. And the, 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 what I have seen is that there, there's something very special in um, the universe unfolding as, as it wants and as it is and accepting that unfolding itself. And, and there's, it's, it's that sense of this should be different or, or, or oh, th or this, um, what, what's happening shouldn't be happening, so, so I need more meditation, I need more therapy, I need, I need more, more projects in my life. And um, so I guess m my, my question is very much like what you were just talking about, is uh, how is that orientation, there, there, there is a sense of, of, of being drawn to something that is not the, s the self drawing you to it. And, and, and how do you know the difference and how do you follow that kind of drawing? So to summarize, <laughs> the, the, uh, basically he was talking about how the sense of self keeps co-opting uh, and using the world uh, to direct its uh, intentions and strategies of spiritual uh, liberation uh, within the same format that it's always worked. And uh, so let me just... Uh, it's it's a very interesting um, it's a very interesting phenomenon. This sense of intentionality. Uh, you see, the reason why we have an that the intentionality of self predominates is because the self still doesn't feel whole in itself. There's still pain issues there that keeps it looking psychologically for an advantage to cover over the pain. And so I keep taking us back to our sense of personal pain because unless that's cleaned up, the self is never going to have, it's never going to relinquish its neediness. It's never going to be satiated. The neediness is never going to be satiated. It's until that's satiated that the energy that went into the investment of being the image that it really wanted can go into the primary intention, which is the real urgency to know life for what it really is rather than what I can make it for myself. Right? That energy can't be faked. It can't be promoted. If we want to be a knower, then we will convert our spiritual journey into a knowledge. And then we will pontificate from that knowledge because we want to be a knower. And it won't satisfy a certain part of ourselves, but it will satisfy another part of ourselves, which is the part that wants other people to recognize us as a knower. You see, that's how it works. At some point, when you see the pain of wanting to be a knower can be addressed and cleaned up, then the, when you have a spiritual insight, it no longer goes into constructing a new knowledge base. It goes into a sense of of inquiry and whoever asked that question and investigation it's like okay what is going on here it's not what is going on here so that I can have a better image it's like what's going on here period why is why am I dividing myself out I know that isn't true in this moment so the energy gets converted into the primary intention of wholeness and then it works starts working dramatically towards that effect. It's so important to realize this. You can't get over any part of yourself. Spirituality is not a bypass 
from our psychological problems. You can't bypass any part of yourself. It's that very, that very uh, pain, suffering, that will keep us reforming into ourselves until it is seen and understood completely. So we go begrudgingly into it. Say, oh, I've got to, you know, it's like going to a therapist's office or, uh, I don't want to do this. It's like, oh, uh, you know, all of, we've all had that experience of, but you know that it's the, we used to do a grief group in hospice care. And we, and the first time everybody would come and they would talk about their story of grief and they would feel the pain, extraordinary pain of, of this recent loss. And then the next week we'd have another grief group and maybe half those people would come. And I know the other half got a lot out of the first week, except when they started thinking of the pain they just experienced, they don't want to experience that pain again. So they're going to bypass it, right? The people that did show up somehow realized that it's through the pain that the healing takes place, right? That's what I'm hoping that most of us are beginning to realize. Because, well, we just keep, we can go out and we keep coming back. And we find cute tricks like to go out and to stay out for a while, like jhana practice. That, I don't have to do a damn thing about my pain to do jhana practice. Go in there and like, and have these, <laughs> right? I don't, have to, I don't have to have worked on myself because these are just mechanisms of mind, inward experiences that seem to be different than ordinary, which truly they are, but they don't do anything to be able to actually bridge the gap between my pain, so that the primary intention can be infused with new energy. Get this one down. You know, this is the path that ends suffering, not the path that bypasses suffering. <laughs> yes, sir. What's the difference between motivation and intention? Well, there may not be any. Uh, motivation is a broader sense. Uh, when I, the way I'm using the primary intention of practice is, uh, is a sense that uh, we are drawn towards a kind of uh, urgency of heart that longs for some sense of completion. Uh, we could also see that as the motivation for our practice. So in that sense, that they are comparable words. Um, but motivation in the way we normally meet can have a lot of different, you know, a lot of different motivations. There can be layers of motivation. There could be a personal layer of motivation and a psychological layer of motivation. There could be lots of different. And so, uh, but when it comes to the primary intention, there's just one intention there. There's really, it all converts itself into this single driving force of heart uh, that uh, only wants this one thing. And it's not, when I say a driving force of heart, I don't mean it's a leaning force of heart. I don't mean it's a, in the sense of how we think of desiring sense of heart. It's just a compelling urge 
to know ourselves, compelling urge to know ourselves. I had, I had sort of an interesting um, process after your last talk about looking at active and passive discernment. Um, in my, when I was meditating, I, I noticed, probably like we all do, that all my thoughts were either in the past or the future. And, and so I just, just thought, I was like, wow, I wonder why that is. And I looked and I thought, oh, when I'm, in the, when I'm thinking the past, I have this sense that I can predict the future. And when I'm dwelling in the future, I have this sense that I can control the future. And then I just went, oh, neither one of those are true. And I immediately got very sad. And then, and that, and then I was just kind of passively with the sadness. And then I thought, oh, I wonder why I'm sad. And then I, and then I realized, oh, I'm sad because I was depending on that for my safety. Yes. And, and, and I can't do that. You know, I have to right. let go of that. And right. Then, and then I thought, and then when I toyed with that thought of letting go of that safety, the interesting thing was that when I did that, when I toyed with it, danger didn't come up. It wasn't like, oh, you let go of safety and then you're in danger. It's like you let go of safety and you let go of danger too. That's it. Beautiful. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't really need to say anything when somebody sa says it so completely like that, but that's how this thing works. It's a beautiful example, much better than I gave, of how this whole system works towards its own cooperation through the willingness to see, the willingness to look, the willingness to take wherever this thing goes to the next step down. That's investigation, by the way. We're going to be talking about that again and again. It was very natural in you. You just went to it and you saw it. And the sense of sadness that you felt is often an accompanying part of insight because one, you see how you've treated yourself that you don't need to treat yourself that way anymore, that you've held, your, you held yourself in bondage to a particular type of thought that really limited you considerably. And there's a sadness from that. And there could be a sadness in the sense that, as you mentioned, that you thought this thing was protect, a sense of protection, but then you saw that it was never a protection. You know, and then there's this liberating quality, and some joy can actually come in, where you say, well, my God, I don't need those thoughts at all. Right? Doesn't mean those thoughts won't come back, because they're very repetitious. They're very strongly repetitious. But now you're not going to believe them in the same way. Like, you've seen it, right? It's, it, when somebody shows you a magic trick, and then they do it again, you go, wow, that was amazing, but I know how you did it. That's, you see, even though the trick can't be seen when the second time, still, you, you know, you know. And that's how this whole thing works. Okay, so a beautiful example of the unfolding of active discernment. I also want to mention, and this has to do with what Alden had to say, was that, you know, we, we say, oh, you know, I keep getting stuck in the same pattern. This happens, and then this happens, and I... I I keep going back and then I try to I make it into a, a conceptual model and, I, and then the self comes back in and I'm not getting anywhere. No, no, you're getting, you're growing vastly. You just described the process you were going through. What knows that? What knows that? 
You see, you're still focused on form, fair enough, but there's something that's knowing something about you that never knew it before. There's, there's discernment happening even as you're begrudging the fact that the same conditions are taking you under. You see? So if you can describe long-standing areas of your pain or your repetitious conditioning, don't begrudge it. Sometimes it takes a lot of repetition for this chain to break, finally break. But it's breaking just through that repetition of seeing. Okay, all, with that I want to... So I had fun. It's always... <laughs> That's the way it should be. It should be fun. Not, oh, God, oh, I'm so discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Be wondrous. Say, wow, I have no idea what he was saying. <laughs> if you sit here in wonder, you will be changed into wonder. If you sit here discouraged, you will walk out more miserable than you came in. Sometimes people come and they say, I don't know what you're talking about, but I think I'll just hang out with it. It feels like something's going on here. That... And so you hang out by the fire and you get, you get dry and you start burning. So just, just the willingness to partake in it dries you out. We're just so, inter we're so used to these the, a fast you know, sort of a super uh, easy uh, way out of our problems. You know, just give me the quick fix. There's no quick fix in this. It's seeing and understanding. Seeing and understanding. It can be fast if you're willing to look, but for most people, they begrudge what they're looking at, and that slows them down. That's all. Okay, let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.